Well, good evening, and thank you again for taking the time to join me as I share God's Word this evening. It's a privilege, again, to do that. We're in the book of Luke, and we'll get there in just a moment. I want to just briefly remind you of a few things. Our website has a ton of information for you. It has information about our service times, about who is meeting where. We're transitioning back to a lot of things on-site, things like our Sunday school services or our um, Wednesday evening as well. So please, take a look at that information. Matter of fact, if you go on our church website, if you scroll to the very bottom, there's a tab that says This Week at Grace, and it will have the most up-to-date information as far as what you can expect. Also, just to look around there on that page, you'll see other information about uh, things that are going on. We are currently into week two of our Sunday School GLBI class. Things are going very, very well. We have over 90 people registered for that class, and they're enjoying it either in person or through Zoom. It's uh, never too late to be able to register for that class. Even if you've missed the first two classes, you're still welcome to come and be a part of that. You can register there online right next to that tab. This week at Grace, you'll see a, a Great Lakes Bible Institute uh, registration tab there. Also, we do have a class that's being offered in October. It's a one evening class, and so you can uh, find out more information on the website. We, uh, again, just are, are glad that you could take this time. Um, it's a privilege to study the book of Luke. It's a privilege to be able to have uh, the opportunity to, to really just see what God is saying through his word. Well, why don't we go ahead and pray before we start, and then we'll just dive right in, okay? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who uh, took on flesh, dwelt among men. Lord, he was the savior of all mankind, but especially those who believe. And so, Lord, we thank you for the offer of salvation that he gives. And we thank you for once he offers that salvation and once we respond uh, to that invitation, once we're saved, we're not left alone. But God, you are patient with us. And we thank you so much for the patience you demonstrated with your disciples, with those who often learn lessons the hard way, who opened their mouth and inserted their feet. But God, if we're honest, we're doing the same thing too. We have your word. Matter of fact, we have uh, really so much more than what the disciples had insofar as we have the complete canon. We have, uh, we, 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 we have the word at our, our leisure in a way that's easy to understand. God, I thank you for it. So as we study it, open our eyes to see and embrace and welcome its truth. And Lord, may we be mindful of what we ought to be, who we ought to be, and how we can apply that truth on a day-to-day -day basis as disciples ourselves, but Lord, also as disciple-makers, having been called to go into this world to share the gospel to those that you've called us to in this community. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 9. We are there in Luke chapter 9. And in fact, last week, I began a message that was entitled, Discipleship is a Lifelong Paradigm Shift. Let me say that again, because I just stuttered. Discipleship is a lifelong paradigm shift. I use that illustration of a paradigm shift, where Webster describes a paradigm shift as an important change that happens when the usual way of thinking about or doing something is replaced by a new and different way. But discipleship is a lifelong change that happens when the way that we think about things as humans, as fallen humans, and the way that we might go about doing something is replaced by a new and different way, one informed and directed by God through his word. I gave the illustration last week of the missionary in Cambodia who had the mango tree. And there were three mangoes on the tree, and he was looking forward to eating them, only to have a day laborer come and eat them right off his tree. He was offended. Why? Because it was his tree. Those were his mangoes. Those were the first three mangoes that grew on the tree. And who was this guy 
who is coming to do some work on his house to just eat them. Well, in Cambodia and in other cultures, that was standard. It was something that would have been viewed as just commonplace or expected for this American missionary. He viewed it as his private property. For the Cambodian, however, that private property would have been viewed with more stingy, uh, viewed as being stingy. The American would have been stingy and not um, uh, offering that food to him. It was a paradigm shift. It was a shift in how things were perceived. So last week, we looked at two different paradigm shifts for the disciples. The first one was that God's majesty is seen in conquering evil here on earth, not simply just voices from heaven above. The disciples had just come down with Jesus from the Mount of Transfiguration, and yet they saw Christ's majesty in his conquering of evil, that that majesty was revealed to all mankind there that were available to see Christ perform that miracle of that exorcism. And it was something that was uh, on par with the majesty revealed to those three disciples there at the Transfiguration. We also saw that their paradigms, their perspectives were shifted in that Jesus' way often looks different than the way we might choose. Just after that miracle where all these people are marveling at Jesus' power, he takes the disciples aside and he tells them once again that he will soon be delivered to the hands of men. And the disciples understood that he was going to be crucified. He was going to be Killed, And this was something that they couldn't understand. How could the Son of Man, how could the King of the Jews, the one who's demonstrating his power time and time and time again, be rendered powerless in their eyes by being killed? And yet, that's what Jesus wanted them to understand. They would be confronted with difficulty as disciples of Jesus Christ. It would cost them their lives. So we ended there last week, and we're going to start this week in verse 46 of Roman, I'm sorry, of Luke chapter 9, and we're going to look at a third paradigm shift. And I'm going to state it perhaps in a little bit different of a way, one that you may or may not be familiar with, or it may bring certain mental images, but I'll, I'll, I'll make sure and clarify it. And here is the paradigm shift that, that the disciples experienced here that we'll see in verses 46 and following. It's this, that Jesus's starting lineup might be the people that you would pick to warm the bench. If you're a note taker, that's going to be an interesting one to write down in your notes. So let me say it again. Jesus' starting lineup might be the people you'd pick to warm the bench. Are you familiar with what a bench warmer is? I know it's an athletic uh, illustration, athletic question, and some of you might not be inclined that way, so please don't check out. I'm about to explain it. Uh, if you grew up in America and you went to a school, maybe elementary school, and they played kickball, and you had two captains and they picked teams, okay, you might understand what I mean by a bench warmer. A bench warmer would have been the last person to get picked for the kickball team, right? A bench warmer is someone who's on the team, they have the jersey, they play the particular sport, they made the team, but they're really not the best player. In fact, they're probably one of the worst players on the team. That's why they call it warming the bench. Depending on what sport you're playing, there could be five people out there playing at one time, there could be six, there could be nine, there could be 11. Um, the bench warmer is not on the field playing or not on the court playing. He is or she is sitting on the bench or standing on the sidelines hoping to get in. And the reason why I use that as a metaphor is because, or use that as a, a way of illustrating this, is that for many of us, for many Christians, we can get the impression that there are certain starters in Christianity and there are certain bench warmers in Christianity. Not on the team, per se. It's not like they're going to get kicked off the team. They're going to lose their salvation or anything. Of course they're saved. But in the scope of service for Jesus Christ, there are the all-stars, there's the ones who are out there, and then there are those who, frankly, really just are kind of riding the bench and aren't out there, aren't serving. 
You see, the disciples actually had a way of looking at who was important, especially who was going to be important in the kingdom of God. And this was something that they argued about with regularity. And for whatever reason, they were arguing about it when Jesus predicted his impending death. Look at verse 46. This is where we'll pick up. It says this, An argument started among them, the disciples, as to which of them might be the greatest. So you have the twelve arguing amongst each other. Who's going to be the greatest? Well, whoever was trying to cast out the demons in the earlier verses and failed, it wasn't going to be them. Maybe it was Peter, James, and John who just came down from the mountain and saw, but they didn't say anything, but they, they, they knew what they had just seen, and they were privileged to be a part of that. So maybe they were going to be the greatest. We do know later on that James and John, uh, their mother comes by and, and actually kind of you know, puts in a good word for them that they could sit on the right and left hand of the kingdom, uh, of Jesus in the kingdom. This argument was taking place among the disciples, and Jesus knew it. Verse 47, but Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, he took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among you, among all of you, this is the one who is great. You know, this theme of Jesus um, accepting the less significant of society actually runs through the book of Luke. We saw it, first of all, in the description of Mary and Joseph, the mother and father of the Messiah. And they're, they're, they're having been chosen, yet being from Nazareth, kind of a no-name backwoods town, relatively unsophisticated. And yet Luke traces how these two individuals would be mother and earthly father to the Messiah. And then through his book, he draws the reader's attention to those who the society would have viewed as being outcasts, Gentiles, and they're being invited to follow Jesus. Women and their role as followers of Jesus. And now here, children. You see, when... Jesus used the child, he showed them someone that their society would have viewed as being relatively insignificant or certainly not uh, pertinent to the task at hand, whatever it is that adults were doing. Adults had their things, children had their things. Children, they play with their toys, they do frivolous things. Adults, they don't meddle with children. Children are inappropriate. But Jesus, by using this child as an example, he showed them how much he valued all saints. Jesus did not have a caste system of respect looking for the biggest man in the room to be the one who would do his work. Religious leaders, they would have not had time for this little child. In fact, elsewhere, you have children looking to come to Christ and the disciples trying to keep them at bay. And so as the disciples are arguing amongst one another as to who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus takes the least great, the bench warmer, and brings that child before them and says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Now, the disciples would discover this in due time, as they themselves would be the preachers of the gospel and yet looked down upon by the religious leaders. After Christ had ascended to heaven, it was these disciples who were carrying out the gospel, and the religious leaders marveled that these were men untrained. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They were zealots. They were uh, anything but Jewish rabbi. And yet here they were proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing people converted, seeing followers literally clamor to hear the preaching. But this message that Jesus gives in verse 48, he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The disciples would discover this all too well in just a few verses. Let's look down at verse 51. We're going to skip over 49 and 50 for the time being, but look at verse 51. 
When the days were approaching for Jesus' ascension, he was determined, or your, perhaps your translation says, he has set his face on going to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. They did not receive him. The Samaritans didn't receive him because he, Jesus, and his group, they were traveling towards Jerusalem. So you have the disciples carrying a message to this town in Samaria that Jesus and his followers needed a place to stay as they were going to Jerusalem, and that message was rejected. Verse 54, when his disciples James and John, the sons of thunder, as they're called, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. These disciples would experience some of the same rejection that they themselves had superimposed on children or a child like what Jesus had, had set before them. They would experience that same rejection. In this context, they were going to Samaria. They were going through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. And the disciples went ahead of Jesus to make arrangements for them. And in the context, this was something that was quite typical. Pilgrims would often travel through Samaria to get to Jerusalem, or to get to Jerusalem, and so it wouldn't have been uncommon for people to want to find a place to stay in these Samaritan towns, especially if they're traveling north from Galilee. Okay, so you have to also understand, though, that the relationship between Jews and Samaritans was hardly friendly. Samaritans had a history with the Jews. Samaritans were part Jewish, part Gentile. Uh, Samaritans were Jews that historically had deviated from marrying within ethnic Judaism, and they had married within the Assyrian uh, culture. And so to the Jews, a Samaritan was an ethnic... Um, well, well they, were, they were considered half-breeds. You know, that's not a, a very friendly term, but they were considered um, ethnically impure and certainly religiously impure. They built their own temple to worship. They wouldn't go to Jerusalem. They built their own temple to worship. You know, when Jesus gave, uh, when Jesus was confronted by the uh, Jewish leaders as to who is my neighbor, who is who is a person's neighbor, and Jewish gives the, er, I'm sorry, and Jesus gives the parable of the good Samaritan. You know, just that context of good and Samaritan is kind of like a good ISIS member. I mean, to us, I mean, good. You know, if you are uh, a person that that perhaps has um, Croatian in your background. You know, when you think of the Balkan Wars back in the 1990s, it would be like a good Serbian. Croats and Serbs, they, they fought against one another. You know, you, you would have, like, for example, nowadays, Jews and Palestinians, how they have this history of fighting against one another. It would be telling uh, a Jew giving a parable of the good Palestinian. These two just were at conflict with one another. And yet Jesus did what? He extended salvation to the Samaritans. He greeted the woman at the well. He offered uh, her water that would never run dry. And it wasn't a literal water, it was spiritual. And he ministered to her. Yet, in this circumstance, Luke records the one negative thing that we hear about Samaritans in this book. He actually speaks of Samaritans in Samaria several times. This is the only time where he says anything negative about them. Again, significant to a Jewish audience. The disciples were rejected by these Samaritans, and they responded by wanting to bring judgment on them for their rejection. Like I said before, back in verses 46 through 48, Jesus places a child before these disciples and tells them that to receive the child was to receive him, and to receive Christ was to receive God the Father. We could also assume that to reject the child was to reject Jesus. And in verse 53, the disciples were not received, and it's the exact same word, that same Greek word. In verse 48, it says, whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Whoever receives my, this child receives me. Verse 53, it says, but they did not receive him. Same word. 
so close to one another that Luke wants us, the readers, to see this parallel. So what? So what's the, what do we take from this? Well, I think there's three things that, that we should be able to see in how Jesus chooses the less significant as those that would uh, be used for service or would be available to hear the gospel and to be saved. The bench warmers, as it were. This paradigm shift. What does Jesus have the disciples see? Well, first of all, he has them see his mercy. He has them see his mercy. Okay, so the disciples, they have a message. It was rejected. James and John response, hey, we should call down fire from heaven. We'll, we'll do an Elijah on them. You know, this is a, a, going back to 2 Kings chapter 1, where, where uh, Assyrians were, were confronting Elijah, and, and, and Elijah calls down fire from heaven. And he does it twice and burns these, these people up. And, and so James and John want to pull an Elijah on him and just call down fire. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand what spirit you are from. He's demonstrating mercy, but in a very real sense, he's demonstrating a mercy that the disciples themselves had received. Why? The Samaritans rejected them but they were inclined to reject that child. Should they too be consumed by fire? Is there perhaps arrogance on who should be the starters, who should be the most significant in the kingdom? Aren't they doing the exact same thing that they're wanting to call down fire from heaven on for the Samaritans? And in our day, if we could fast forward to the 21st century, we really need to be on guard against the big man on campus in Christianity mindset. I don't know if that's an official title, but you know what I mean. Where there are certain Christians that are the big guys, the big voices. They have the respect. They command the following. The definition of success, being able to speak to large crowds or have a, 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 a big online following. And, and I'm not saying that because speaking to crowds or having an online following is somehow bad, but it's very easy to be respecters of persons when it comes to that form of Christianity. And it doesn't have to be any type of liberal Christianity. This is ripe in conservative Christianity. The conferences are driven by the speakers, and if you don't get the speakers, you don't have the conference. You don't have that person to come. You don't have that team to come. And what is it? And so there's this celebrity Christianity as it were, and it can be rampant. And frankly, it can be seen most vividly in the disregard and the lack of appreciation for the faithful layperson in the local church. That person who God has called to be, from a human standpoint, relatively insignificant, but to faithfully serve and be a part of a local body of believers carrying the message of Jesus Christ to their community and building up one another in Christ from within. Now, there's really not much to be learned from that Christian. What we need, and I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, what we need is the superstar. What we need is the guy that can really take us, that we can really, you know, get behind and we can celebrate. I, I think, I know Jesus is not pleased when that's what our focus is on. When that's how our Christianity is defined. When that's who we see as the most significant. When we're looking over and we're looking past the faithful, the spiritual, if I can put it this way, the spiritual children and the spiritual Samaritans. And we're looking for the Christian superstar. And Jesus says, whoever receives 
this child in my name receives me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. And when we see, and maybe I can take this a step further, when we are called to carry the gospel and, and we, we have the privilege of sharing that gospel, and we share it, and, and it's rejected. And we're frustrated with the rejection. We're frustrated with, with the one who would, who would uh, not listen and, and maybe look down upon our message. Okay, we understand that, and, and, and that's part of, of being an ambassador. But at the same time, who has God placed in our life that has carried a message of the gospel that might not be as refined, it might not be as polished, might not be as professional as the Christian superstar, and as a result, we tend to look down on it. Aren't we too guilty of the same thing that frustrates us? Would we repent of the sin of respecting persons within the work of Christ? We have different roles, but we do not have different values. second thing we also see here is the patience of Jesus Christ. The patience of Jesus Christ. Later on in this book, in Luke chapter 17, we see the story of uh, the ten lepers who were healed. One went back to thank the Lord. But that took place in Samaria. In Acts chapter 8, we see Philip preaching to Samaritans and many of them coming to Christ. In fact, Simon the sorcerer saw what, what Philip was doing and, and wanted that same ability. Why do I bring that up? Well, imagine if James and John got their wish. When they say, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven? He says, yes, let's. <laughs> then what? Jesus wasn't there, and he says as much in verse 56. Jesus wasn't there to destroy men's lives. He was there to save them. There will be a time of judgment. But in the meantime, we can rest on the truth, and we must rest on the truth of 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, if you want to look there very briefly. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Do not let this one fact escape your notice. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. And you say, what's his promise? Well, read verses uh, 1 through 7. And his promise of judgment upon the earth for its sin. He's not slow about his promise to judge, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It is the patience of the Lord Jesus Christ that allowed for fruit to be reaped from Samaria. Jesus took these disciples, bench warmers themselves, and with them and other followers, turn the world upside down, we read in Acts. He's chosen the spiritual children and the spiritual Samaritans to build his church. You know, Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse 26, he says this, and this may be familiar to some of you. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Those who will boast, those who will use Christianity as a means of building themselves up, as creating a name for themselves, they will experience a terrible fall. If not in this life, then in the life to come. 
Those who use, who depend upon their own charisma, they depend upon their own strength, their own ingenuity, and become enamored with themselves, and people become enamored with them, they will experience a great fall. Yet those who God will use are those who aren't necessarily the wisest, aren't necessarily the most beautiful. Why? Because he then gets the glory. He gets the glory. So God changes the disciples' perspective and continues to change our perspective by using those with less significance. He uses some with significance. I mean, we can't escape. Verse 26, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. That doesn't mean no wise, no noble. Not many. So Christ uses those with less significance, and he's changing our perspective. But secondly, I want us to see here that Christ also uses those who might not be doing it your way. This is the second part of this paradigm shift of Christ taking the bench warmers, right? Christ takes the bench warmers, our bench warmers, and he puts them in his starting lineup. He uses those with less significance, but then secondly, he also uses those that may not be doing it your way. Well, what do we mean? Well, let's look back at Luke chapter 9. Luke 9, and we will be in verse 49. Okay? So Jesus has just brought the child there before them, shows them, whoever receives this child receives me, the one who's least among you, this is the one who's greatest. Verse 49, well, John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Now, this statement of John just reeks with irony because here they were as disciples unable to cast out a demon in this child we looked at last week earlier in this, these verses they were trying to cast out this demon they weren't able to and yet earlier they had rebuked a man who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus Christ Jesus was telling them, though, these disciples, to look at the big picture. What do you mean the big picture? Well, the big picture was that, it was what we read in verse 50. For he who is not against you is for you. In other words, and I know I'm using a lot of athletic comparisons here, so I apologize, those of you who are not athletically bent, okay? Basically, what Jesus is saying is, there's two teams. There's my team, and there's not my team. Verse 50, he who is not against you is for you. Well, what is the context? The context is, there is a man who wasn't with those disciples following Jesus around Galilee. He was maybe on his own, maybe following someone else. But what was he doing? He was a follower of Jesus Christ, and we know that he was a follower, he was a disciple of Jesus Christ, because he was casting out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. And we know that no one could do that unless God were in it. So, he didn't look like, he didn't follow in the same way that John and James and the other disciples followed, yet he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. He was a Christian, we could say. And Jesus says, don't hinder him. Now what Jesus wasn't doing, and this is where I really want to be clear, especially as we look at the application of this. What Jesus wasn't doing was somehow giving blanket approval to just anyone doing anything and slapping his name on it. Okay? However, 
We can't let our perception swing so far the other way that we fail to appreciate and thank God for the reality that there are other believers doing the work of God. Let's see this in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 12, get some context. Now, I want you to know, Paul is preaching here, Paul is uh, writing to the church in Philippi, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that the most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word without fear. And at this point, we are like, hooray! People are sharing Christ because of uh, and they're accepting Christ because of Paul's testimony and because of being emboldened by the testimony of Paul. But let's keep reading. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Huh. But some from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. These would be companions of Paul. These would be people who are in close fellowship with Paul. But verse 17. The former... Proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Kind of being a thorn, or at least trying to be a thorn in Paul's side. What then, verse 18? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. What is Paul doing? Paul is doing what Christ was telling his disciples to do. Paul was rejoicing that the name of Jesus Christ was being preached. In every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. You know, I want to share two illustrations that I think will help kind of bring this into a 21st century context. Not too long ago, uh, I, I was at the doctor's office and um, was there... And I was wearing a Grace Church of Mentors shirt. I, I had a polo from a missions trip. And a man came to me in the hallway and looked at my shirt. Matter of fact, we were in the elevator together. And, you know, he was just kind of looking at me. And he said, Grace Church, that's, that's in Mentor? I said, yes. He's like, so do you go there? And I said, well, actually, I'm a pastor there. And he said, you know what? These times, it's like... 2 Timothy, oh, what is it? It's, it's that passage in the Bible that talks about that, you know, the times are growing darker and darker and things are just getting more difficult. And, and in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, that's 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I said as much. I said, you mean 2 Timothy 3? Like, beware because things will get worse. He's like, that's it, that's it. And then he started listing out some of those details of the passage and, and he was just really discouraged. He's like, we just need, you know, people who are believers in Jesus Christ that much more. I said, you know what, you can't be, you know, you're absolutely right. I said, you know, and my mind went to the end of 2 Timothy 3, where it talks about how we've been given the word of God, and that all scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I say, you know, sir, Praise God that we have his word and it has the answers and it helps equip us who know Christ to be able to share the word that has the answers in all of these dark times. And he said, amen, brother. Absolutely. And so here we are sitting there talking and it was just a short, a short time, but we walk off the elevator and he testified that he was a believer in Jesus Christ, the follower of Christ. I testify that I'm a follower in Christ. And I said, hey, so if you don't mind my asking, do you have a church here in the, you know, in, in the area that you attend? And he gave me the name of the church. Now, this is a church that some here at Grace Church used to attend. And it's a church that has believers in it, but there are differences. And those who used to attend no longer attend for biblical reasons. Yet, here was this individual, we'll just call him 
Doug, I, I honestly can't remember his name, but Doug is the first name that, that came to mind. So we'll just call him Doug. Doug and I on the elevator are enjoying a level of unity in that in the face of this dark world, he and I enjoy something. We're brothers in Christ. We have hope in the gospel. We have the truth in God's word. The second illustration really is more or less a hypothetical. And that is a situation to where, let's say that you move into an area and, and you find, uh, uh, you, you move into a new home and as you're getting to know the neighbors on your street, you get to meet maybe a neighbor that knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And as you get to know them, they have a, a strong faith in God, they're, they're, they're clearly believers, and it's just so encouraging that you met a neighbor that, that knows Christ, and yet you go to Grace Church of Mentor, and they go to a different church, maybe a church that would have some different ways of applying the gospel. They would hold to the gospel, they would preach the gospel, but they would have ways where we would have our fellowship limited. There's a unity that brings us together, a big picture. But there's still an element of difference. And the reason why I said earlier on that I want to be very clear here as I'm sharing this is because there is a reason why the practical outworking of our faith looks the way that it does. Your conviction, your lifestyle, where God has placed you as far as worship and church, those are important. I would say vital. But Jesus makes it clear in this passage that there are really only two teams. Those who are for him and those who are against him. You hear us say often that there's only two types of people in the world. Saved and unsaved. It's the same thing here. Now here's one practical way of thinking this way of how should we think about those who are on our team, but maybe don't do it our way. And I'd, I'll be honest with you, I'm still working this out when it comes to dealing with my relationships in my community. I'll be honest, sometimes it's easier to relate to an unbeliever than it is to a believer who we find differences in. And, and at some level, I'm not happy with that. An unbeliever needs to know Christ, but with a believer, they know Christ. And, and now there's just kind of the complexity of applications and, and the way things are done in different churches, and it's tough. So as I, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I'm, I'm working this out, not from the standpoint of we just throw away all boundaries, throw away all standards, and somehow become this one big ecumenical family where everyone just really loves Jesus but doesn't really have doctrine. We've seen that play out, especially in 20th century American evangelism, where even here in Cleveland, Ohio, 1972, 1994, having crusades where literally hundreds of thousands of people are hearing a gospel message only to be sent out to 31 different flavors of doctrine, from Catholic to you name the other Protestant denominations, liberal, conservative, whatever. I'm not saying that we should embrace that. But let's work this out. And here's how it's working out for me. When I talk to Doug in the elevator, or I have this neighbor in my neighborhood who knows Christ, that's a face. That's a person with a story and a context. It's a soul. And I can walk down the road of unity and commonality pretty far, but eventually there's going to be some differences to where that person goes to a different church, perhaps, and has different points of application, maybe different aspects of secondary doctrine, not primary doctrine, but maybe secondary, third level issues even. We're going to, we're, we're, we're not going to be able to go all the way, but eventually we will, from the standpoint of we're going to be spending eternity in heaven. That's a person. But then there's institutions. 
There's places where you have the name of the church or the name of the school or the name of the whatever, and this is what they believe, and everyone in that institution is kind of faceless. You know, Doug, he's a person, he's a face. Institution, faceless. And here's what they believe, and kind of everyone that just goes there just monolithically or, 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 or they, they just all believe the same thing. And to look at that institution is to immediately categorize them based upon difference. And I'm not saying that there isn't difference. But there are some souls here in our community, there are some places here in our community that hold the gospel of Jesus Christ and there's difference. And if we're not careful, we can look at them as faceless, even almost heretical. Why? Maybe because in some cases they are heretical. Maybe in some cases they have a false doctrine that they're teaching, at which point we do separate. But here what we see in Luke chapter 9 is genuine believers who are there, who are doing the work of God, and it's kind of difficult to work out all the, the, the differences uh, when it comes to person to person, but at the end of the day, they're saved, we're saved. We should be thankful. And that's what I'm getting at. Let's be known for being thankful for those who are doing God's work. Those who are disciples of Jesus Christ and God has placed here in our community as salt and light, though it may be somewhat different from us. Let's be first known for love of our brothers and sisters and not being quick to jump to criticize or quick to identify all of the differences. That's not to say those differences aren't important. I hope you understand what I'm saying here. I hope you understand what I mean. But if we're not careful, we can have the pendulum swing so far the other way to where we deal or we treat Christians who are different from us the same way we treat unbelievers. Will there be times where separation or limited fellowship is necessary? Yes. But there's individual faces. They might be next door to us. They might be in the same YMCA class as us. Let's be thankful for the other brothers and sisters in Christ in our community. And let's also be mindful of where God has called you and where your attention ought to be. What do I mean by that? Well, God has called you to a local church, and your accountability is primarily with building up that body. There may be times where you may have impact on other local bodies, but that's not the primary ministry God has given you. Let's be thankful for the place God has you, and let's invest in those believers. Here, it's Grace Church. So my primary place of accountability is the believers here at Grace Church. And if this is your church, that's where your primary place of accountability and investment ought to be. And for those Christians that don't do it our way, let's be thankful because they are on our team. Let's be careful to be thankful. And let's be known for being thankful. As one, as, as one commentator put it this way, the disciples here in Luke 9 and us as a result, the disciples are to focus on their task and leave the rest up to God. Not being quick to criticize others who follow Christ that don't belong to their group. And, and I like that phrase. The disciples are to focus on their task and let's leave the rest up to God. We're going to do our best to get this right. And we're going to do our best to apply it in a godly way. And there's going to be things that we just work out until the day we die. But there's going to be a body of believers that, is my, that, that requires my primary attention. I may interact with other believers in the community, and I praise God, and I thank God for those relationships and those friendships. But at the same time, I'm going to trust God that he's going to work that out, that we're going to work our mess out, because that's what we all are. We're sinners saved by grace. We all bring our own messes. We all have our own approaches. 
And Jesus is in the pattern of taking the perspective, the paradigm, as it were, and shifting it to show us the big picture and to remind us of that big picture. And then having that big picture play out in our day-to-day walking after Jesus Christ. Again, I'm doing my best handling this passage. The Lord's really been working on me just even how to verbiage this in the right way and, and how to, to, to help lead the congregation in the right way. And if anything, it's be known for love and be slow to criticize. That, that Jesus wins. He's our king and he's going to right all of the wrongs and all the things that we wish we could see resolved in our lifetime or here on earth, we might not see that. And it's okay to be not okay with that. But it's essential that we understand that, that Jesus will work this out. And there will be eternity where everything is clear. And all of the followers will be brought together underneath the kingship of our Jesus Christ and where God will dwell among men. And that day can't come soon enough. So God takes the bench warmers, me, you, and he puts them in his starting lineup. He takes the least significant. He takes people that may not do it the way we do it, but he is building his church. And for that, let's give thanks. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And I pray that our church might show the loving kindness of God that leads men to repentance. That we would be firm in what your word says. That we would be unwavering. That we would obey it completely. Lord, give us wisdom. Help us not to be respecters of persons. Help us not to fall into the trap of personality or celebrity when it comes to the the, the body of Christ. Lord, help us to just be far away from that. Help us to love one another in our roles that you've given us here in your body. God, Lord, Lord God, I, I pray that you might also help us to be wise and to be slow to criticize to be quick to be thankful for those who are doing your work, those who are in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the saints all across the globe. Continue to build your church. And thank you for the privilege that we have to be a part of that. In Christ's name, amen. Well, thank you for this time. Really thank you for just hearing uh, what I trust to be God's word. I hope you have a wonderful evening. Lord willing, we'll see you soon on Wednesday. Please keep one another in your prayers. Uh, We'll just, uh, we'll, we'll be thankful for that, and I'm certainly thankful for that as well. Have a wonderful evening.